Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Bring, bring it fast. Hello and welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hi guys, uh, Kev, thanks very much for having me on for the first episode of the season. Uh, my name's Sam Karp. I'm a Crystal Palace supporter, uh, occasionally write for the Eagles Beak fan site, and you can find me on Twitter at Sam double underscore Karp. Yeah, thanks for uh, having us on. feel very privileged to be doing the first one of the season. Uh, I'm Jim. I'm the EPL Roundtable's Leicester City fan. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jim Knight Tweets. Awesome. Well, yeah, again, thanks to you so much for coming on. As they said, this is the first show of the of the new season. I think this is season eight now for us, which is just incredible. Um, and a lot of Spurs fans are going through their first potential heartbreak with Harry Kane potentially leaving. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have already had to do two, well, three with Modric, Vandervaart, and Bale. So uh, <laughs> personally already buckling up for what might come. Um, obviously, a huge story in the news this week was uh, Kane's reported refusal to return to training, although it certainly seems as though he wasn't he he didn't think that he was refusing to come to training. He thought they had an agreement that he wouldn't come back until Saturday, and he is back now. But it certainly seemed like he was kind of pushing for that Manchester City move. And I'm just curious from your guys' uh, slightly more neutral opinion, what you've made of how uh, Harry Kane and his agent and brother, Charlie Kane, have handled this situation. Yeah, well, I get, you must have known this day was coming there, Kev, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen eventually. But um, I know, yeah, it depend, this week it sort of depends he believed, I suppose, like you said, you had the, the reports at the start of the week saying that Kane had refused to turn up to training, um, which felt like a very un-Harry Kane thing to do. Uh, and then, you know, just before the weekend, you have Kane issuing a statement of his own saying that those reports weren't accurate. Um, you know, after it's, it's, it's difficult to think that so many of those reports were wider than Mark. So I don't know whether that statement now is actually perhaps more more damage control than, than anything else, perhaps having a, a real a realization in Kane's camp, maybe that, you know, a, a move away this summer isn't quite as likely as they anticipated, maybe at the start of the window. Um, but you know, what we what we do know is that Kane has been angling for a transfer since since the end of last season. He's made it pretty clear that he wants to move away to win trophies, which is something that recent evidence suggests he isn't going to be able to achieve at Spurs. Um but at the same time, we know that Daniel Levy is a notoriously difficult man to negotiate with. Uh, so, so you know, perhaps this is what Kane feels like he has to do in order to to sort of force to remove. Um, I think also it's it's important to sort of remember that he isn't the first sort of perceived one club man or you know uh, an academy product who has gone on to do really well that has 
sort of done something like this. Uh, you know, there was a time when even Steven Gerrard looked on the verge of leaving Liverpool for, for Chelsea, I think yeah. it was. Um, if I draw my own experience as a, as a Palace fan, Wilfred Zaha has, has made no secret of his intention to leave. Um, we've just seen Jack Grealish um, go from go from Villa to to City. So, you know, th- this, this kind of thing happens when a, a player of of Kane's quality who, you know, he is in the top two, three number nines in the world, maybe the top two, just him, him and Lewandowski out there on their own. But, uh, you know, sometimes a player does outgrow a club in the world. I'm not sure if that's the right way of putting it, but, you know, he do, he has sort of shown himself to be a player capable of achieving more of, than what he has at Spurs. Um, so he probably does feel that, you know, he is entitled to this move. And, if this is if this is the way that he feels he has to act in order to in order to get what he wants, then you know he's he's going to do that. Um, I think if Kane does stay though, the the fans will warm to him again. You know, it's something that we've seen on frequent occasions. You know, the Gerrard situation I just mentioned is he's thought of no less at Liverpool um, after that Chelsea saga. You know, Palace fans still worship Wilfred Zaha in the same way. Um, and if Kane does stay at stay at Spurs, you know. The fans will continue to support him because he'll score a lot of goals as he always does, and he'll probably be Spurs' best player as he often is. Um, but yeah, it, it is also always a shame when when you sort of when you see when you see sort of what has been such a sort of you know romantic story kind of sour a little bit towards the end. Yeah, I'd agree with pretty much all of that. Um, I think Sam's recapped the situation really well. I do wonder how much the um, delay in Kane's clarification statement, because um, it was a significant amount of time. I think he was reported as missing training for the first time on the Monday. And I, his statement, I don't think, came out until the Friday. Mm. Um, no matter how disconnected you are on your holiday, I'm sure he will have been aware of the rumours circulating, all the stories all emanating from quite, you know, some, okay, not so respected outlets, but plenty of respected ones as well, um, all along the same lines. I do wonder how much of that was down to the fact that Lionel Messi was basically confirmed as leaving Barcelona um, in that interim period because of their financial issues. And maybe he thought, okay, might need to do a bit of crisis management PR here because there's a chance that, you know, Man City changed tack, Barcelona, Messi, uh, the, sorry, the Guardiola Messi kind of link is obvious. And mm. I don't know whether his camp were um, cajoled into some action to kind of clarify the situation from their perspective. Um, you know, I, I find it hard to believe that he didn't know what day he was coming back to training. So someone is telling little fibs along the lines somewhere, or, you know, the truth may be right in the middle, but um, it's not unusual that, players that go so deep into major tournaments are given time off. Um, so it's very, very possible that Kane had agreed that extra time. But, you know, you've got to ask where those um, stories were coming from and to what end. So, yeah, I do wonder how much that messy kind of situation played into that clarification um, situation. But at the same time, as Sam rightly pointed out, I think if he stays, then the fans will take to him. I don't think there'll be ill, Ill will or ill, Ill feeling there. If there is, it will soon be forgotten as soon as he scores his first goal or double or hat-trick of the season, you know. Um, because Tottenham know they're a much better club with him than without him, even if there's 100 million or 130 million or whatever numbers are being discussed on the end of it, especially this close to the end of the transfer window, even if a deal gets done now. Everyone knows you're walking around with 130 million or whatever the transfer fee is. It's very, very difficult to then negotiate and bring in players that you're not overpaying for because everyone knows you're cash-rich and time-poor. Um, 
it, it's a tricky situation for all involved. Kane is clearly wanting to go out and win trophies. And, you know, with his advancing age, I don't think any of us can blame him for that. But at the same token, I think it's been handled quite badly by his camp in the sense of like if they had legitimately agreed that he could stay an extra week or, or return to training late, then a statement on Monday afternoon would have quelled all of this issue rather than letting it run for the best part of five days before then coming out and clarifying that he still wants that relationship and, you know, he's still committed to returning and doing what he needs to do as a professional. So it's been, I found it quite a whole, I found the whole situation quite weird. Like you don't often get players speaking out as publicly as he did. Like he did the Gary Neville podcast and stuff. And I know he didn't explicitly say, I want to leave Spurs this summer, but he kind of intimated in a way that left most of us in no doubt that he wanted to leave um, and that he believed he had like a, you know, a situation that would allow him to do that. So I don't think it's been handled particularly well by his camp, but then his brother is his agent. And I do wonder what are the chances that the best person to handle his um, future is the person that, you know, lived with him as a kid. Um, I don't, I do wonder how much of that is just a, a family kind of, you know, a lot he's of people his only by, Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I know agents get a bad rap in football and yes, some of them are undoubtedly in it for the wrong reasons and looking to exploit talent, et cetera, et cetera, and make a very, very nice living out of doing so along the way. But at the same time, I do feel that maybe a more, shall we say experienced um, professional agent might have handled that a little bit differently. I don't know. I'm not an agent and I don't know anyone that I could speak to about that, but I do get the sense of maybe, you know, is Kane getting the very, very best advice from a PR perspective from a guy who doesn't have any other clients other than his brother, which obviously muddies the waters regards to, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, I don't think it's been handled the best, but at the same time, I do think it's very much still up in the air. Obviously, Kev, I'd love to get your take from Tottenham perspective on whether you think it will happen or or what you think will be the, the fallout from this. But, you know, uh, the more I see of it, the more I, I'm swaying towards the, the no transfer kind of side and Guardiola's statement. I know it's probably intended to engage Levy in a negotiation saying, you know, that Tottenham needs to negotiate and that's that. They've made a bid, it's been rejected and Tottenham needs to negotiate. But at the same time, we've seen Levy put his foot down before with Modric, with Bale, and they've stayed an extra year and then moved on, you know, as a result of that, so are mm. we in that situation? Were we in that situation a year ago? And is this that year now where there is a gentleman's agreement that Kane can leave and he's just driving the hardest bargain? I don't know, but it proves to be. I, I think it'll be a fascinating couple of weeks coming up because, you know, the season's getting underway. If Spurs need to get replacements in to replace those 25, 30 goals that you can normally expect from Kane in a season, they need to get on with it. And um, they're only... They're only um, weakening their negotiating position with other clubs if they truly intend to sell or, or they truly intend that he's for sale at, a, at any price basically between now and the end of the transfer window because if they let him go with a week to go that's just all you know it's a, it's a complete waste of everyone's time apart from the extra few million that they get out which is going to be absorbed in the inflated transfer fees they're going to have to pay anyway yeah exactly I, I think both of you made a lot of really good points so as I understand it I think where the confusion falls is I genuinely think the club and Kane had different ideas of when he was returning. There was a report that he had asked for an extension of his holiday to make it a full month, which would have been up until this past Saturday. And apparently it was rejected. But who did that? Who at the club knew when he was supposed to be back or not? I think that's like the crux is like you were saying, Jim, it's like one of them has to be telling fibs unless they literally both had different expectations. And then the confusion is that it fell right in the middle where Kane thought he wasn't needed back until Saturday 
and wasn't able to because of quarantine stuff. And the club thought he was going to be back Monday for his test. So that, I think that's the best case. Otherwise, as you say, somebody, somebody is shading this their way in the PR battle. And I don't think Charlie Kane is doing a particularly good job of all of this. I do think, though, obviously a lot of people are taking digs at him and his in-office motorcycle and, and the like. Um, and all, every single thing in his office being of his brother. But uh, agents just don't do random crap. He has clearly been instructed to see if there's a possibility of Kane being able to leave to move. Probably to Manchester City, since they're basically the only ones with the money to do so. Although you could kind of debate that post-Grealish. Um, but I think you're, you're right, Jim. I, it's the question of when was the gentleman's agreement, but it's worth noting that because we opened the show by me mentioning Modric, that the gentleman's agreement with Modric was the year that he didn't leave. And then the next year he was allowed to leave. Also worth noting that Levy exclusively wants to sell his stars abroad. And next summer, there's a much higher chance that, that clubs abroad would be after him, especially if Mbappe left PSG. Would Pochettino be interested in bringing Kane back? You have Alexander Isak probably going to move. Holland's probably going to move. Um, Vlahovic might move next year if he doesn't move this one. <laughs> I just think there's a lot more opportunities next year that aren't just Manchester City. And I think Levy would far prefer uh, to sell him to the continent the same way he did with the likes of Modric and Bale. So I, I think it's, it's a mess. Uh, as you guys say, it's it's really late in the window to sell someone of his caliber. This the season starts Friday, so uh, not not a lot of time left. And I think that's where there's a lot of concerns within the Tottenham fan base that if if we did sell him, it would be kind of a uh, Berbatov situation where we just have to like loan someone in at the last second just so we actually have a recognized striker. Um, so personally, I still don't think it's going to happen. But it really is as easy as. If Manchester City agree to pay the price tag, he's gone. Like, it's it's literally that easy. We can talk about Levy and how hard he is to negotiate with or how unlikely it is that we'd sell him this late in the window. But basically, if they show up with 150 million pounds, he'd move tomorrow. But it seems that they aren't willing to do that. And I think why this whole plan was so flawed, and I tweeted this earlier in the week, is holding out for a move only works if another club comes in for you. Otherwise, you're just not going to work. And it's accomplishing nothing outside of like maybe avoiding a training injury, but now he's back training anyway. So it, this seems like they've just made a lot of missteps because at the end of last season, after the interview, a lot of fans were angry about when he did it, but a lot of fans understood that he wanted to move on, that he wanted to win trophies. And obviously with letting go of some of our senior players, letting, uh, letting Mourinho go, watching Mourinho <laughs> fail his way out of the club, that we were no longer trying to achieve something with the Pochettino core. That was the whole point of Mourinho was bring him in, capitalize on this core that Pochettino had built, see if we can't win something. And we didn't. It's the beginning of a cycle. We totally understand that Harry Kane might want to leave. There are plenty of fans that would leave if they could. But uh, the way that they've handled it, I think, has just soured everything. So much so that I've heard a couple of people talk about this, that Harry Kane is no longer like a club hero. He is now just a very good, talented player that wears a Tottenham shirt. And I think, Sam, it was you that was mentioning, like, the story, the, the the romanticized idea of one of us and, and, and one of our own being the lead striker for, for Tottenham, being arguably the best striker in the Premier League, one of the best in the world. And now it's, I think, that the allure has dimmed, the idolization has dimmed, the, the hero worship of him has dimmed. And maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe that will come back if he ends up staying through his contracts in 2024. This will all be water under the bridge. And there is a chance that this is his opportunity. And by next year, it, the, the door will be closed. I doubt it because someone would always want somebody of his quality. But 
Yeah, I, I think I think this is they've basically taken a misstep at every possible turn thus far. So much so that even the Levy out people are backing Levy in this situation, which is really telling of how badly this has all been handled by them. But that's where I'm at. I, I don't think he goes, but as I said, I could be immediately wrong if they show up with the money. Uh, from the outside perspective, do you guys think he, he's kind of stuck for the year? Yeah, I definitely do. I, 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 I think we see this sort of situation play out fairly often. Obviously, like Kane's a very high-profile one, but there are sagas like this, you know, every window where you have a top player at a club who wants to leave. But he's almost he's almost tied his hands behind his own back in a way by signing this contract. He's got three years left. Spurs, you know, Spurs aren't really under any pressure to sell him except from the player himself and you know what they keep mentioning or what keeps sort of getting floated about in the media is this gentleman's agreement gentleman's agreement between Kane and Levy and like what what is that I I, I can't really get my head around it like what and, you know when you're negotiating a contract there's either a clause in there such as Grealish's 100 million pound release clause that Villa inserted when he signed his four or five year deal um was it last season I think it was um Whenever it was, so. but you know that's something that someone can come in and activate. A gentleman's agreement isn't something that you know a team can come in and say, you know, oh, you guys have got a gentleman's agreement. I'm going to order, offer X amount of money, and therefore you have to let them go because you said you because you you know you said you would. Levy can make all the verbal promises he likes to Kane, but he you know <laughs> there's nothing contractually that says he has to sort of honour them. So. Um, you know, because of a, co- a combination of things, uh, you know, as I said, the time left on his contract, um, what you've said already, Kev, the amount someone will have to pay to get him. Um, and that's what also makes the Grealish thing so strange. I think if I was Manchester City and I, you know, I've, I've sp- I have a hundred million pounds to spend, um, or possibly a little bit more, no, um, you know, I'm sure they'll be able to wrangle some of their sponsorship contracts and make that a little bit more. But if I have that amount of money to spend and I'm, I've got the choice between Grealish and Kane. I think I'm probably going for the one that, you know, is likely to guarantee you 20, 25 goals a season and in a position that for City, you know, they really need to fill with Aguero having gone. Um, obviously, Jesus being kind of, I think off the top of my head, is that sort of only striking option going into the season. Um, it's a, Yeah, I, I don't really understand the logic behind spending 100 million on a player that, really you've already got sort of different variations of whether it's you know um Foden, Bernardo Silva, uh you know, you've got Sterling as well, Mares. Um, you know, Grealish is gonna go in there and he's a, I'm not suggesting that Grealish isn't a fantastic player is he showed at the Euros again that he is capable of going to that next level. But ultimately he's gonna kind of he's gonna be sort of rotated in that team. Whereas you imagine if they were to if they were to buy Kane, he'd be he'd be starting every single week, more or less. Um so yeah, there's. I think there's just a number of factors that seem to suggest at the moment that this move probably won't happen. So yeah, I can I can still see him being a Spurs player at the end of the window. Yeah, I think Sam's again. Sam's kind of touched on a lot of the key points there. I think the one thing that I would say is if Harry Kane has taken the word of a gentleman's agreement when he signed his contract or any particular extension after seeing what's happened as you said, Kev, with the Modric situation, might I suggest his representation should have been aware of that and Mm. therefore made that a formal clause in his contract if indeed there was a a figure to be put on it. Um, Again, going back to that kind of representation option of of being 
having your brother as your agent um I don't know whether that has kind of been a bit of a misstep I, I do think that Kane has basically lost every single piece of his leverage now in this situation other than the fact he's Harry Kane and he's probably a guaranteed 20-25 goals for City every season if they were to pay the money um his statement he's almost he, he screwed both ways because most people, I think, have sided with Tottenham in the sense of they believe that he hasn't shown up because it tracks with him wanting to leave, albeit it was a little bit out of character for him to do that based on how he's always spoken about his love for Tottenham and coming through the academy and that kind of boyhood um, story, which is is fantastic. And, it, you know, it's one of those where people like to to kind of, you know, it, it's the textbook kind of Roy the Rovers situation, right? You grow up playing for a club, you come through the academy, you become the integral part of that team, you captain England, et cetera, et cetera. He has lost all of that leverage now because he's backed down from his original position, which is almost worse, I think, than letting people think that he skipped training for a week because yeah. he now has, if he, he can't play the bad guy again now. He can't sit out, he can't refuse to play, he can't refuse to train because he's already backed down from his heel turn position. Both in and returning and in making the statement. Yeah, exactly. So both. So he's not, to use an NFL term, he's not holding out, but he's also not admitting that he did anything wrong and he's climbing back and it looked very much to me like crisis management, you know, when that statement came out. Um, no matter how he tries to fudge it in the language that he used in that short statement, he has now got absolutely zero leverage. Like Daniel Levy must just be sitting there with his feet on the desk thinking, well, I've got all the cards here either Manchester City pay the money that I'm interested in or Harry Kane stays because he can't go heel turn again and refuse to play for the club that he professes to love so dearly because that's just going to completely turn everyone against him. And I don't think he wants that. I don't think he wants to be, I don't think he wants a move at the expense of being hated by the club that he, you know, he professes to love. So it's a very, very difficult one for Kane now. He's kind of got to like, basically if, if since he don't stump up the money, He's just got to knuckle down and play and and hope that next season his stock is high enough that someone will come and pay money for him. But I do also wonder if, Kev, you, you named three or four different strikers that could move next year. Mm. Um, is there a chance that he gets usurped in the City pecking order by an Mbappe, by... By Holland, know, who already has connections yeah, to the well, club and is like six exactly. years younger. And by all accounts has something in his contract that would make him more affordable for clubs of Manchester City's ilk this time next year. So I do wonder if he's seeing this as his opportunity to strike while those other options aren't on the table. Obviously, we're in a very depressed transfer market to some degree as well with COVID. So he's running out of options here. It's funny that, I mean, it's hilarious that the first Tottenham game of the season is Manchester City. I mean, that's just like scriptwriter's dream, isn't it? Um, <laughs> But at the same time, I do think he's lost every single piece of leverage that he's got. And now the ball is in the court of someone who will demand every single penny of that true figure of whatever the number is that Daniel Levy wants. And I think Daniel Levy is perfectly happy to play the bad guy in the long run with Harry Kane and sit there and say, look, they didn't stump up the money that we feel is acceptable. You'll continue to wear that shirt for Tottenham this year and you'll score us 25 goals and hopefully get us in the in the European football picture, you know, like I think he's happy doing that. He's done it before. He has no problem with, you know, he, he he's not in it for positive PR, whereas I think Harry Kane really is now. Um, and he's backed himself into a corner where he's probably going to end up playing another year at Tottenham. I, I hardly think that 
Man City might just be going off the whole idea now. They won the league without a striker last year. They've got, as Sam said, a myriad of options that they could. I mean, they won the league putting Ilkay Gundogan through the the middle and Kevin De Bruyne through the middle at various times last mm. season. There is every chance they could do that again. Gabriel Jesus is technically there, but I don't think Pep Guardiola fancies him. I think that's very clear. Um, I, they've got that many attacking options. They could convert one of them into a striker and with the amount of chances that they'll create, they'll be there or thereabouts. Um, I do I do wonder how much kind of they see Kane as the final piece of the puzzle of winning the Champions League because he's a guaranteed goal scorer and he obviously makes you more likely to win the Champions League if you can rely on him showing up in those fixtures, unlike, say, a converted striker mm. um, after falling short last year. But again, if the ownership aren't... I know they're all out for the Champions League because it's kind of the last piece of their puzzle, but if they're happy to wait another year on the understanding that they could get a talent like Haaland or an Mbappe, then Kane, Kane might be running out of options here and he might just be stuck with no suitors this time in two years. So, I mean, there'll always be a market for him, but it just depends. Like, his advancing age doesn't do him any favours either. Like, he's really in a tough situation here. This is like his... He's probably got this year and next year to move for really big money because beyond that, you do have doubts about his longevity to the point where people probably won't pay the money that Levy's going to want. And then you've got a diminishing returns there for Kane and moving in the first place. So, you know, it might well be a Gerrard situation where if it doesn't work out this year, it might not work out at all. So, Kev, you might be stuck with one of the best strikers in Europe for the next three years. Ah, shame. Um, <laughs> it's what you get for signing six-year contracts, I suppose, which then hilarious Christian Romero literally just did in joining, um, which is kind of its own thing. And we'll kind of continue on that thread in a second here. But yeah, I agree with all of you. And I think it's interesting that both of you mentioned the Jared thing, because I think it's it's probably the situation that he has a very small window in which he could move for the kind of money that we'd be looking for. Uh, and I'm just not very sure it's going to happen. And just like, it's so typical Tottenham that the best window isn't when the situation is the best. So, like, uh, for example, the Leicester year. Like, that was our best opportunity we were ever going to have to win the title, but that was not the best our team was. Our team was better two years later. But our peak didn't line up with when that window was. I just feel like it's the same thing based on the fact that City need a striker and that they're the richest club in the Premier League. It, it seems like it would be perfect, but if they aren't willing to spend the money, then... He just kind of misses that chance. And as we've we've all said, there's going to be a lot of strikers on the market next year, which means there's a lot more potential destinations. But it also means you'd imagine the valuation will be lower because all of those people are out there and there aren't five clubs that are going to spend more than $100 million on a striker next year. And that's how many players of, of that potential price bracket could be out there. So, yeah, it's a... Uh, it's definitely a bit of a mess from his end. And, and you mentioned Daniel Levy being fine being the bad guy. He's literally only being the bad guy to Harry Kane. The fan base, as I just like, oh, boo-hooed, would be delighted if, if Kane was stuck here. We'd prefer it if he wanted to be here. I want you to want to be here, that kind of thing. But if he's just there regardless, as you guys said, if he starts scoring the goals, then, then the fans will definitely come uh, behind him a little bit more. Whether it'll be the full unbridled love of before, curious to see. But yeah. We'll see. Uh, as I mentioned with um, Christian Romero there, the, uh, a trend that's happening right now is Premier League clubs are spending so much money on center backs. Um, we're still waiting to see if the Varane or Koundé deals are actually announced or happen, but uh, Christian Romero to Tottenham for around $50 million, Ben White to Arsenal for around $50 million. It seems like people are willing to really start spending on that position, which for a while seemed to be the cheapest uh, really in your starting 11. Why do you guys think that, that the prices for center backs are so high and we're seeing so many clubs willing to spend so much to bring in high profile ones? Uh, I think it's I think it's something that we've started to see 
um, more frequently in recent years, to be honest. It's, it's probably because you have had very good case studies where you look at all the title winning sides in the past three, four years. And, you know, as, as, as great as those sides have been going forwards, um, the key player has often been a centre back. Um, you know, Vincent Company before he left City was just a colossal figure. Um, Van Dyke when he went to Liverpool. Uh, and, and obviously Diaz last season. Um, so, you know, I, th I think each of those mopped up awards in those title winning seasons. So it, it really isn't a surprise to see these clubs trying to trying to strengthen that area. And, you know, a, a Rolls Royce centre-back, a, a player like a Van Dijk, a player like Diaz, you know, they, they come at a premium now. Um, and so, yeah, I suppose it hasn't been a surprise to see United going into the market and getting Varane, um, Arsenal getting Ben White, um, Spurs, as we've, we've spoken about, getting Romero. Um, and, you know, th those sides that, that we mentioned, United have needed a reliable defensive partner from Maguire for a while. Um, Spurs have needed to replace Alderweireld at the, at the very least. And Arsenal's defensive issues, I think, have been something that we've all thoroughly enjoyed uh, for several years now. Uh, but I'm not sure whether sort of like if we'll see those... I suppose if I'm focusing on those three in particular, because I guess those have kind of been the sort of the three most high-profile ones in in the Premier League, that you know the, the most high-profile moves that we've seen at, in that position. I'm not sure whether they'll have the sort of same level of impact as as Diaz and Van Dijk. You know, when Van Dijk signed with Liverpool, he was like, you know, he was the missing piece of the puzzle for Liverpool. Really, every, every everyone knew how good he was from his time at Southampton, and they already had the team around him to. To give him the best chance of being a success. Uh, same with Diaz in a way, who like, but you know, slightly different in the sense that for a lot of people was more of an unknown quantity, and a, you could probably argue exceeded expectations in a way. I'm not sure anyone sort of expected him to come in and you know mop up awards like he did. But around him, he also had one of the strongest squads in Europe. Whereas you know, you look at United, you look at Spurs and Arsenal, especially um, centre back isn't. The only area that they that needs strengthening. There are other, there are other areas of the pitch that needs to be addressed. Um, so you know, I think it would be hard for someone like White or Romero to have that sort of transformative impact at, at teams that you know ultimately are kind of in a bit of a transition phase. Um, I suppose if you were looking at one of them, I, I guess maybe Varane. If that is, as you say, if that is if that is confirmed, perhaps he has the best chance of kind of being the individual who pushes United towards a title. Um, you know, United were strong last season. They've only got stronger, you could argue. So if he can slot in and find the form that that made him one of the best in the world at, at Madrid, then then yeah, possibly. But, it, you know, it would be hard to emulate the seasons that uh, Van Dijk and, and Diaz had in, in, in Liverpool and City's title-winning campaigns. Yeah, I'd agree with the assessment that Varane's probably the, the most likely to have a significant impact at the top of the table, potentially because I do think that Tottenham and particularly Arsenal aren't in that title challenger bracket. And I think that's the metric by which you judge these signings ultimately. Like, yes, you can improve a team, but to what end? Like, you know, Arsenal and Tottenham have, have struggled um, kind of in the, the recent past to, to challenge for those titles. So, yeah, I do think Varane is probably the, the best um, in terms of the potential impact. He... He strikes me as a bit of an anomaly. Like I was surprised by the fee um, that wasn't as high as I might have expected, perhaps because I don't follow his career that closely. But he's got such a glittering CV, and coming from Real Madrid, like you expect, I, I thought he would he would go for slightly more money. Um, 
But that's by the by. To answer the original question about why do you think there's so kind of much focus on centre backs, I think it's because the, a lot of them aren't that very aren't that good. Um, there aren't that many really, really world-class centre-backs. And I do think like some of the examples that we've cited are really, really good ones. So like Van Dijk, for example, um, and Diaz, both clearly world-class players. But at the same time, you've got players like Maguire, who I think is a very, very good centre-back. But again, you're playing the relatively young England player tax on him. Um, 80 million was a crazy fee at the time and I still stand by that like I still don't think he's an 80 million pound centre-back I just think he's a centre-back that United wanted who happened to be relatively young and English and I think it's probably the situation with Ben White I could be proven wrong um but kind of moving in he's got the holy trinity of high high fee kind of potential he's moving from one Premier League club to another he's 23 so he's not you know he's not yet in the prime of his career and he's English so Arsenal have paid 50 million, but is he a 50 million pound player? We we don't know. Um, and I doubt that he moves the needle enough for them. I mean, they're, they're a defensive shambles and have been for a while. We know that. But I don't know whether he necessarily moves the needle enough to be worth the money that they've paid for him and to what end that actually helps them. You know, if he moves them from like finishing, potentially finishing seventh or eighth, to finishing sixth, like is that fifty million pounds worth? I don't know, but I do think there's there's a very high premium on centre backs at the moment because of the fact that a lot of them just aren't as good as people need them to be. So um, when you do get a good one, a gem like a Van Dijk, you know people are willing to break the bank. It's probably sim- it's probably similar to strikers, you know, in that sense. Like I know they're not as glamorous, but there aren't that many genuine twenty goal a season strikers out there. So when one does come along. And the way that we've just talked about Kane, you want to drive the hardest bargain possible and you want to get the highest fee for them because they're the most difficult position to replace and they have the biggest impact on the results um, at both ends of the field. So, you know, yeah, it's somewhat surprising that so much money is sloshing around for that particular um, position. But at the same time, I do think it's the kind of scarcity of not having a lot of them to pick from. I think if there were a few more kicking around, then it would have depressed the market overall. Yeah, I think you guys both make some really interesting points. I, I think the the interesting one here, comparison-wise, as, as we're kind of talking about clubs trying to replicate the, the Van Dyke and Ruben Diaz signing, is that we basically knew Van Dyke would be as good as he was, both because he had already been in the Premier League for a while and he was a bit more established. Ruben Diaz was closer to what Tottenham and Arsenal are trying to do with um, Christian Romero and Ben White, of by right before they get to that level, so that you aren't spending the 70 to 80 but you're paying in that in that 50 to 60 range. Um, I think that's that's a bit of a gamble, but there is reason for optimism because Tottenham almost signed Ruben Diaz last year with the Milan Skriniar money. You may notice that neither of them actually joined, but uh, I think last year was Ruben Diaz stamping himself among that group. So there's a chance, but that's, you know, spending 50 million on a center back, hoping that they get to be that good is uh, it's it's a gamble. But but like you said, Jim, there's there's not that many out there that have even the potential to be that good. So you have to just try. And, and I think in Ruben Diaz's situation, not only was he very good, but I think he landed in a system that benefited him greatly. Uh, John Stones obviously took a really big step up next year. You can argue whether that's, that's the, the strength of the partnership or whether he just individually improved. But uh, I think for those reasons, I, I agree with you guys, that if Veron does indeed land it at United, I, I think it's much closer to him being able to help them take that leap and a system that would suit him um, more than maybe some of the other ones where they have to be like the key guy as younger players. 
um, which can always be difficult, especially at the back where I don't really think Arsenal or Tottenham have strong leadership in their back line. And I'm not sure your brand new signings in their first year can be expected to do it either. But time will tell in that regard. Um, we're running a little slow on the show today, but I definitely want to get through this next topic with you guys, which is the Premier League is back this week on Friday. If you're assuming that you aren't hearing this before Monday when this is supposed to go out, just the four days away from the start of the season. So as we always do to start the year, just curious to get your guys' early feelings on who might win the title, who might be in that top four race, and who might be uh, staring down a relegation battle. Yeah, it's quite... It's, I was looking at this, it's quite, it's quite difficult to predict when all the transfer activity isn't done yet, because, you know, there's a, there's a temptation yep. to say City again for the title. Um, I don't think anyone would be surprised if they did do it, but I, I still do think they, they need a striker, in my opinion, whether that is Kane or or ultimately ends up being someone else. Um, if Kane does sign, I think, you know, he scores a hatful of goals, as I said already. I think he'd quite comfortably score 20, 25 in that team, and I think they'd win the win the league quite handsomely. Um, if they don't address that, though, I'd be quite tempted to say Chelsea for the title. Um, you know, Lukaku coming in feels pretty big for them. Uh, he's rediscovered his form in Italy with Inter, and as someone who's a big fan of his, and but he was pretty poorly handled at United. I think he could come back with a point to prove and is going to ultimately slot into a team where you've got the likes of Havertz and Werner who have got a season under their belts. Um, Tuchel has had more time to get his message across. They're the champions of Europe as well. Um, so, you know, I, I can only see Chelsea improving and I feel like if anyone is going to run City close, it could be them. So, so yeah, I'll, I'll go with Chelsea for the title. Um, <laughs> potentially one that could come back to bite me. Uh, but I'll, yeah, I'll go City second, United I think will be third, and then with Liverpool in fourth, uh, with Leicester just missing out again. Apologies, Jim. Um, and relegation, I'm really struggling with. I think a lot of people will be tipping Palace actually, which is probably kind of fair in a way. Um, obviously, we're going to we're about to go through a pretty big transition this season, so it's it's one of those which there's a lot of unknowns about it and. Um, with obviously a manager as well who isn't necessarily proven in the pre- isn't proven in the Premier League, I should say. Um, so I'm sure we'll be kind of mentioned that in that conversation. But I'm not going to tip my own team to go down. Uh, the teams that have come up, you'd think Norwich will have learned from their experiences, so might be a little bit better on this occasion. Brentford feel like they're going to be a, again a bit of an unknown quantity, and then you know Watford do already have some Premier League quality players and in the form of you know saw so i don't think the gap is going to be as big as last year and yeah but in terms of teams that were in around it last season burnley i worry for because they haven't really strengthened but sean dyche is their trump card and it would be it would be brave to bet against him uh newcastle too have had had a very newcastle summer but i think if they can get hold of of willock and if Wilson's and Maximan stay fit and they and they should have just about enough. Brighton, another side who were in the mix, but I feel like they were decent last season and can't possibly have the same luck in front of goal. So um yeah, my bottom three, I think I'll I'll take two of the promoted sides. I'll say Brentford and Watford. And you know what? I'm gonna be that idiot who bets against Sean Dyche and I'm gonna say that this might be the season that, that mm. Burnley do drop out, but I'd be I wouldn't be surprised at all if I'm Proved completely wrong and they sort of finished 12th, 13th, you know, <laughs> around there. 
yeah, Sam's taken all my notes, I think, for this, because um, I think a lot of my predictions <laughs> kind of marry up with his. I do, I, I kind of just to reiterate the point, I do think if City get Kane, then they're probably unstoppable because they will have everything and the kitchen sink in terms of goals. And I think they've got a, a superb defence. But I do think Chelsea are probably the most likely to challenge them. I think the way that they've, the trajectory Chelsea are on since Tuchel arrived puts them on something of a par with Man City um, in the way that they weren't under Lampard. So I think there's there's definitely um, a really interesting top two battle there. I don't think, I'm still I'm still not an Oligan Solskjaer um, believer in the sense that he could take United to a title. I just don't think he's th- that calibre of manager. I think when you put him, you know, no matter how much money he spends on that squad, when you put him up against Manchester City with with Pep and um, Chelsea with Tuchel, who's just taken them to the Champions League in his first season, um, it's not even his first full season with the club, and add in Lukaku um, to the mix as well, which was basically similar to similar to Man City. It was their missing piece um, was a striker that they could really rely on. They had a few swings at it last year with Werner and various other players, just trying to find something that fit, but. If Lukaku can hit the ground running, and we know he can do it in the Premier League, his, his majority of his career has been scoring goals in the Premier League for various clubs. So I do think they're the nearest challengers. And then it would be a toss-up, maybe Liverpool third and Manchester United fourth, just to add some variation um, there. Because I think Liverpool, as long as Van Dijk is is the Van Dijk of old, um, they'll be bang there. But I think it's, it's probably one of the most competitive title races um, in recent seasons, in the sense that you could kind of make a case for any one of those clubs based on the transfer activity that they've brought in um, actually taking the next step if they're not Manchester City, basically, those top four. Um, I do think then there's a significant gap to teams like Leicester, Tottenham, Arsenal, um, who will be in the mix um, for that. Relegation candidates, I feel like I bet on Burnley to go down every single season and I feel like it costs me money every single year, but I just don't see where they're getting better. But maybe this season there are I, there are probably three teams worse than them. I I don't know enough about Vieira and I haven't like looked into his managerial um, kind of credentials deep enough to understand what he's doing at Palace or what he's going to be like at Palace. And obviously it's difficult. Like, is he going to be a steady hand or is he going to be like a Frank de Boer experiment? And if he is that bad that quickly, do they get rid of him and get someone else in that ultimately ends up saving them? That's that's always a potential, I guess. Um, Norwich, I feel... A, Probably, although they're wiser for the experience, I don't think they're quite as good um, as they were last year and uh, last time they were in the league and they went down. So I think it's Norwich. Brentford, a bit of an unknown concept. I like Brentford to stay up because I like what they're about. I like the way that they develop players, but I just wonder whether they're equipped enough for the league and their their style of play. Um, having watched them quite a lot, I think they've got a lot to prove at that next step up. And obviously they're an untested team obviously leads uh, hit the ground running with Bielsa last year and made a good fist of it and they're probably primed to take another step forward and be maybe they're the new wolves in the sense that they're challenging for um you know European places if they can find their feet early and and kick on with their exciting style of play so my three to go down will be uh Norwich um Brentford and that's tricky isn't it really really tricky I'm going to go Palace. Sorry, Sam. Um, but I'll, I'll go Palace just on the assumption that I think they've got such a big turnaround um, to make in terms of freshening up their squad. A manager who is relatively unproven, certainly at this level, and I just don't know whether that's going to go 
um, go go wrong to the to the tune of a relegation battle. But again, it falls down to me either picking Burnley or or Palace, and I know which manager I'm backing out of those particular two at this point in time. Uh, but that could be my ignorance in not knowing enough about Vieira and what he's trying to do. Mm. Um, I was going to make a couple of other points just quickly to to cover a couple of the other things that we mentioned in the show in the show notes, maybe. Mm. For top goal scorer, um, I think Danny Ings has landed in a really nice spot for for something like that um, at Aston Villa. He obviously turned down what I understand was quite a big contract offer at, at Southampton, so clearly sees Villa as a, a place that he could kick on. I really like the signings that they've made. Obviously, they've lost Grealish, but in the likes of Buendia, um, getting Leon Bailey in as well, I do think they've done some good business to the point where, okay, they might not be taking that next step as a club, but I do think even if they go two up top with Watkins and Ings, that Ings is a natural finisher. And as long as he can stay fit, I think he'll be really in the mix, particularly because there are doubts after a big tournament about the likes of Kane, Sterling, um, obviously Lukaku will, will kind of make it a, a good challenge towards that. Um, you don't know how soon they're going to hit the ground running, what kind of hangover they'll have from the summer of um, exploits that they've had at the various tournaments. Um, and I think Ings, with no European football for Villa, he could be that that player, a bit like Vardy's been a couple of times mm. when Leicester haven't been in Europe, where he can make hay at the weekends when teams are playing twice a week and then not. Um, so I, I like him for, for that. Um, so yeah, it's it's a super competitive season again. I think I'm just looking forward to getting into it. But I, I largely agree with Sam's takes, really. So um, whether that makes them better in kinds of people's view of them, whether that enhances those claims or not, I don't know. But we're we're certainly along the right lines, particularly with the top of the table. Wish I hadn't said that um, Leicester were going to be outside the top four now. <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty ruthless response from Jim there, but you know, yeah, there you sorry. go. Yeah, sorry. That's we'll, the we'll joy get... of going second. You get to see what people say yeah. and then react accordingly. Yeah, <laughs> nah, very fair. Yeah, common <laughs> tactic in battle rap, as uh, we and I'm sure all of our listeners are familiar with. Um, but uh, I, I think you guys have, have made a lot of really interesting points. So I'm not going to retread a lot of that ground. I do think we'll see a reestablishment of the top four rather than this big six that we've been discussing for like the last three or four years, which immediately got shattered by Leicester anyway and Arsenal being pretty terrible and Tottenham working hard to become so. Um, so yeah, I, I think it'll be the big four up top. And at the bottom, uh, I agree. I do think two of the promoted sides will go down. Uh, Gitto was on last week to do our, our promoted side special as well. And he also had two of them going down. That seems like a, a pretty safe bet. They just don't all seem as, as Premier League ready as ones we've seen before. And you could argue, as, as I think you did, Sam, that, that Norwich are the closest. But losing Buendia is huge for them. Like Cantwell is very good in, in midfield for them as well, but the, the creative output that Buendia was able to create was just so great. And then obviously Timu Puki started to decline a little bit his last year in the Premier League. Um, I'm just not very confident about them. So for me, I have Norwich, Brentford, and you almost got there, Jim, but Southampton. I really, really like their manager. <clears throat> but with news that Vestergaard might go, they still have three goalkeepers, which means you have no goalkeepers. Um, the fact that Ings just left, I don't think Che Adams is ready to be the guy for them yet. Interested to see if they have something in Obafemi, but we've been waiting like two or three years to see him break into the first team. I I don't see it from them, them. as much as I like Hassan Hoodle, um, especially if they lose somebody like Vestergaard this late in the window. I would not be very confident if I was them. But I do think we're talking about all the same kind of clubs being in and around that bottom group. But uh, that was the one that neither of you mentioned. I was like, ooh. 
I'm not confident that they'll have a very good season at all. And, and they could get dragged down there. And, and they have in the past, even when they've had better squads than this. And now they kind of don't. I mean, if somebody came in for Ward Prowse for a set-piece taking ability... I mean, lo- losing Ings is very damaging in terms of what you're trying to tell people is the direction of your club. And I really wouldn't be surprised if he's not the last big name that leaves St. Mary's uh, by the end of the transfer window. All right, uh, now we'll take a quick break, and then we'll be back with club-specific questions for each of our guests. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, and we are back. We'll start off with Jim talking a little bit about Leicester. So you were very fortunate in in that you were actually able to go yesterday to the Community Shield match. So I was just curious, uh, from your perspective, what was the experience like? What was the match like both on and off the pitch? Just how was all of that yesterday? Yeah, it was a weird one. It felt obviously I went to the Tottenham game at the back end of last season, but that was my first kind of live football in a in a semi full stadium um, for kind of eighteen months. So it was a it was a very strange situation, especially being at Wembley, which is not somewhere we get to go that often. Um, it was a fantastic day. Obviously, the result kind of dictates that, and I think yes, we beat a relatively second string Manchester City side, but it was you can only beat what's in front of you. Um, and it was great to to lift a trophy of some ilk, even though I don't think it's, you know, on the same calibre as your domestic trophies um, by any means. But it's still a piece of silverware and it's something we've never won before. So it, it was nice to get back to something that feels like normality. Um, the atmosphere was strange because I don't know how much you saw based on the camera angles of which broadcast you were watching, but it's pretty empty. Like I think I hadn't seen an official attendance, but I'd be amazed if it was, if it was over like 55,000 in a 90,000 seat stadium. There was quite, there's huge swathes of like the upper tier that weren't sold at all. Um, so there was some confusion about that because the teams were only given like 30,000 tickets each, neither of which I don't think sold out. Um, so I think there was a bit of malaise from both sets of club supporters as well through maybe it was COVID. Uh, I don't know, like maybe it's not wanting to travel. Maybe it's people not wanting to because you had to prove that you were either double vaccinated or that you'd passed a lateral flow test. So 
I don't know whether that had an impact on the attendance um, overall. Um, obviously, Manchester City, not notoriously good travellers anyway. So whether or not they were kind of like, uh, it's another community shield. We're in it feel, what feels like every year anyway. Like, just skip it. Um, so, yeah, it was a strange atmosphere to some degree because it wasn't a full Wembley, which you'd normally expect for a showpiece game like that. Um and there was some there must have been something going on with the sponsors that went wrong because for teams to only get sixty like to, to get a total of sixty thousand of the ninety thousand seats, something must have gone wrong. There was some rumours that McDonald's, who were the sponsors, had got a load of tickets and they couldn't find people to go, which I find strange given they're probably one of the largest employers in this country. So um yeah, that's strange. Um but it was a good it was a good game overall. Um I think Leicester deserved it on the balance of the chances. I think we equipped ourselves well and it was exciting to see some of the new signings in action, which obviously we've not had much chance to see so far. Um, and just looking forward to kind of getting back to something close to normality, a, a sold out King Power Stadium on, on Saturday against Wolves. Yeah, I mean, you doubled them in shots on target. They obviously had possession because honestly, who knows the last time City didn't actually uh, end a match with the most possession. But yeah, I thought you guys gave a really good account of yourselves. Now I have to ask the very obvious question. Is the Community Shield a real trophy or a preseason friendly? I think that answer depends on whether you win it or not, right? If you win it, it's a real trophy. It's not. If not, it's a glorified friendly. Um, like I say, I think for us, Leicester probably took it a lot more seriously. You can see that in the team that was named. And obviously, I know City have still got players away from um, international duty and extended holidays and things like that. But they were in it to win it. They just weren't good enough on the day with their mix of academy products and more experienced players. Um, I think it's definitely a trophy kind of that you want to consider a trophy. Basically, I just don't think that it's anything close to um, the, the domestic trophies that you win. But by the same token, the only way you get there is by winning one of those. Um, so unless the, yeah. the same team wins the FA Cup and the, the Premier League, which obviously is possible. But the fact that you're even there makes it a trophy in the same way that like the UEFA Super Cup is undoubtedly a trophy because you had to win one of the two key competitions to get there. So I wouldn't kind of discredit it in that sense. And I know maybe maybe it depends how big of a team you are and how used to what you are winning trophies. Like I know Mourinho always used to claim it, but he'd claim everything because he does as Mourinho's MO, right? But if you're a big club like Manchester City, you probably don't see it as a big of a thing as, you know, they're, they're more worried about the back end of this season, winning the Premier League, winning the Champions League and winning the other two domestic trophies along the way if they can. Um, Leicester, you know, that might be our only piece of silverware for the foreseeable future. Um, I know we won the FA Cup last year, but it took us hundreds of years to win that. And um, there's no guarantee that we're going to be in contention for a domestic trophy again. So I think we enjoyed the experience and kind of saw it as it is a trophy. Granted, it's a one-game shootout, but yeah, we kind of we kind of considered it as such, and I think that's the way it certainly should be for a club of Leicester's size. Yeah, well, congratulations on winning uh, two trophies in the last four months. Then, uh, well <laughs> done to you. Um, the other big question is uh, one you're not going to like because I feel like every single time you come on the show, we have to talk about somebody being injured. Um, obviously, uh, just a, a really, really horrible tackle um, suffered by Wesley Fafana in what was supposed to be a friendly, but tell that to that challenge. Um, and I was just curious if you have in-house options that you're looking at or if you'll be forced into the market to kind of deal with that and, and Johnny Evans' increasing age. Yeah, so we've we've got a bit of an injury crisis already and the season's not even started. Um, obviously, the, the tackle on Fafana was a horror one, and I think there's, you know, it's a real, it puts a real dampener on the start of the season, even given the Community Shield win to lose such an amazing talent like Fafana for what looks like six months. Um, 
Rogers said that he wouldn't be back before 2022, which obviously I know it's like four months, but again, you don't know with these things, it's a broken leg. So there's no guarantee that he'll be back in, in, in time for the, um, the second half of the, the campaign at the start of the new year. So we're in a bit of strife there because really our only fit kind of centre back that has any kind of normal relevancy in the team is is Soyuncu. Um Johnny Evans is out and looks like he'll be out until the first international break um at the at the earliest, which he's struggling with a foot problem, uh, which I think has been like a persistent issue with him. And obviously he is getting older as well. Um so there's no guarantee that he'll be able to play um often enough. Wes Morgan retired at the end of last season. So again, that's another centre back option that granted wasn't one we called upon very often, but he could sub in for a game. Um, if you needed him to, he's, that's not going to be an option anymore. We played Daniel Amati there um, in the Community Shield, which again is an option, um, not one that Rogers often takes. Like Amati is clearly a very valid squad player, but I think he's there for his versatility more than the fact he's our first one of our first choice centre backs. So I do think we might dip into the market. I know Vestergaard <clears throat> at Southampton. Uh, you touched on earlier, Kev, when you're doing your predictions that. He's kind of been linked. And I think the fact that he's probably, I think he's close to winding down his contract. So the value of him kind of would be low enough to maybe tempt us into to making a bid in the sense of like, even if it's just for a year, to see it as like a, you know, a, a squad cover slash loan fee type situation where you pay it, but you don't really need him for more than a year, assuming that everyone else is back to back to full fitness. Um we could potentially go down the Ryan Bertrand route and just find anybody with a, a fitness kind of check and just say, look, we'll bring them in and hope that we can make do amend. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see Wilfred and Dealey drop into the back four at various points in the next few games, albeit that's, I think, limiting his ability to influence the game where he's best, which is the centre of midfield. Um, and I don't think we'll go to a back three uh, with wing backs because we haven't got enough centre backs to make that happen. So I think it will have to be the four, two, three, one um, in various guises. It will just be kind of who that second centre back is alongside Soyuncu. So I do think it's very, very possible we dip into the market, whether or not it's a loan or a, a cheapish buy is um, is to be debated. I do think we've been linked with Tarkovsky at, at Burnley on and off. And again, I think he's not signed a new contract there from what I remember. So there's a potential to go in and get him, but I don't necessarily see us making that kind of signing because we believe wholeheartedly that we've got enough cover when everyone's fit in Evans and Fafana. So I don't know whether Rogers would want to make a move like that and stunt the potential development of an asset like Fafana in the future, just because he had the unfortunate um, situation of being injured by a horror tackle in a friendly, like, it's not his fault that that happened. And I don't think we're necessarily going to spend big to replace him when he'll be back in a few months and we see him as a really big prospect to kind of come through and hopefully be at the centre of defence for a good few years to come. Yeah, obviously had an incredible debut season and um, thoughts out to him and having to deal with such a horrible thing. It seems like he's in pretty good spirits considering and it is worth noting. I think he's always happy. Like the guy's <laughs> never without a smile on his face. The first thing he did was post a beaming selfie of himself in the hospital in the bed. Hospital. And, like he's just horrid, uh, had a fractured uh, leg and a dislocated ankle. So yeah, uh, yeah I'd hate, I hate to see what puts him in a bad mood. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I think you probably are actually more worried about the ligaments in the ankle because – 
I'm sure as, as we all know as fans of sport, it's become increasingly clear that ligament damage, especially in knees and ankles, can end up being way worse long term than a broken bone, which once it heals is healed. Um, so yeah, ho- hopefully he's, he's going to be able to come back to his best and that leg won't cause him issues moving forward. Um, coming to you now, Sam, to talk a little bit about Crystal Palace. You've had quite the six months. Um, I think the last time you were on, we were still talking about what Roy Hodgson's future would be. Obviously he's out. Um, you've brought in Patrick Vieira. Uh, you've refreshed your entire back line, um, letting likes of Scott Dan go and, uh, Mamadou Sako, Gary Cahill, uh, bringing in um, Joachim Anderson, Margahi. I always get his name wrong, even though I watched him plenty in the championship of Swansea. Um, but and then also bringing in Michael Elise. Obviously, the the sad news is Bereche Eze isn't going to be able to be a part of the season for quite some time. But lots of changes happening at Crystal Palace after being a relatively stagnant club when it came to player moves over the past few years. So how's everything going over there? Are you catching your breath? Are you excited at this point, or or more questions than answers? Yeah, I mean, it had to happen at some point for us, though, didn't it? We've, had, we've been sitting on this sort of ageing squad for for quite a while now. Um, so it's been, it's been long overdue, uh, I think. Uh, it's just kind of, it's sort of a shame that we've had to do it this summer and, you know, a summer which has ultimately been disrupted by various things, whether it be COVID, um, the Euros going on as well. So it's been it's been a shorter summer than usual, I suppose, and it's been a difficult one to, to have this kind of overhaul, I suppose. I'll start with, I guess I'll sort of start with Vieira, I think is probably the most obvious place. Um, just that whole sort of managerial search was a bit weird because it went on for so long. Um, I think it dragged out for a month in the end. And it was kind of, it was one of those things where, you know, you know that Hodgson is leaving at the end of the season. So you'd have, you'd like to think that um, we would have had someone lined up or a number one choice at least, and that they'd be in place kind of two three weeks after after the end of the season but we had we had various setbacks and you know i've i've gone through the full gamut of emotions with it i think I, you know i vividly sort of like remember how i first felt when i heard we were likely to appoint Vieira. i'd actually i'd been out for the day not really looking at my phone and then when i did have a look there was just a sequence of whatsapp messages which all said something along the lines of what are your thoughts on Vieira?" um and to be honest, I just put my phone back in my pocket because the first season I had was like one of massive apprehension. I just didn't really want to deal with it. Um, and, you know, if I saw another club in Palace's position to point him, my first instinct probably would have been that, you know, that team is is possibly going to struggle. Um, and it also came just after we'd been so close to getting Lucien Favre, who a lot of people were very excited or allowed themselves to get very excited about. Yeah, it would have been fantastic. Um, yeah, so, you know, whoever we appointed after that felt like it was going to be a little bit underwhelming, um, probably in the same way that, you know, with Spurs throughout throughout their whole managerial search as well, having been, you know, supposedly close to Conte at one point. Mm. Um, so there were, there were kind of like a lot of similarities there. And, you know, then you're also getting these comparisons with the Frank de Boer situation, um, where you're suggesting that you know, we, might, we might have hired a, a big name based on their reputation as a player. Um so yes, yeah, so there were kind of a lot of things in the back of our mind which weren't filling me with too much confidence. Um, but you know, now while while that apprehension is, is still there, it's it's there in kind of a good way, I think. Um, having sort of listened to various podcasts and read a lot of things about Vieira's managerial style and um, how he got on at New York City and then and then Nice, uh, I think there are 
there are reasons to be positive. Um, obviously, the De Boer comparisons are fairly natural. He's Vieira is only the third non-British manager we've had, if you include Attilio Lombardo in that. So it is a bit of a culture shift for us. Um, but there, there is a bit of excitement there. Um, De Boer was a very prickly character, sort of closed off. Um, from what I've sort of heard and read and listened to, you get the impression that Vieira is going to be a lot more hands-on. He kind of he likes to form relationships with his players, whereas it almost sounded like with De Boer, the door was always sort of shut and he just got a little bit frustrated when players couldn't do the things that he used to be able to do. Um, so you've got that. And then sort of there's also a bit of excitement just because of some of the signings we've made too. Um, they're all kind of the right profile in a way, in the sense that they're young, they'll have sell-on value. And it's just, it's very different to sort of the type of player that we've that we've signed in the past. Um I haven't been to any of the preseason games, but those who have are suggesting that it, it has been decent. They're seeing subtle switches to us kind of pressing higher up the pitch and having more of the ball, which obviously we didn't under Hodgson. Um, the players have been smiling as well, which is always a great sign. Um, I know that, <laughs> you know, Palace are only ever going to post pictures of the smiling, but it does sort of generally look like they're kind of enjoying the change to a system that is a little bit more on the front foot you know, having perhaps not been given quite as many freedoms under Hodgson in the past. Um, so, you know, with, with Vieira coming in, I think whereas someone like De Boer tried to completely revolutionise the way we play without the players to do so, Vieira seems to be trying to move us forward, having assessed what he's got at his disposal and is doing it a little bit more of a progressive kind of way and just implementing slight changes that do, slight changes, slight tweaks that, you know, aren't going to sort of, massively change things overnight but it is sort of taking us in the right direction um and i also do kind of i i know that sort of, i know jim alluded to the fact that we've had this massive overhaul i i don't know if it's obviously the change in manager is a very big thing but in terms of the squads i don't feel it's quite as big um i mean i might be proved very wrong on this but you mentioned a couple of them there already um with dan cahill sacco uh, Connor Wickham's gone now. Um, Andrus Townsend, Patrick Van Arnholt, James McCarthy, Wayne Hennessy. Yes, kind of like big characters and sort of players, I suppose you'd associate with Palace in the last few years. And, um, but of those, I think maybe half of them were regularly in and around the starting 11 last season. And to be honest, I don't think any of them particularly made a case that it was crucial for us to, to keep them. Um, and then at the same time, we've managed to re-sign Benteke, which I think was kind of a priority after his form at the end of last season. Joel Wards has got a new contract. Nathaniel Klein, Vicente Guaita, who was our player of the season last year. Um, and then you add that to the fact that we've still got experienced heads like James MacArthur, Luka Milivojevic. I suppose Zaha you could include in that group of players now. Um, Jeff Schlupp, James Tompkins, Jairo Riedewald, who there are pretty high hopes for. It does feel like we've still got a decent core of experienced individuals to go with, you know, what we've brought in and potentially still could bring in. So, yeah, I, having initially, as I said, having initially had that sort of sense of dread, sense of apprehension, I think, I think I'm a little bit more excited now going into the season. And you know, we know, we know it's going to take time, especially given the fact that I think we played Chelsea, Liverpool, Spurs, Arsenal, West Ham, Leicester, and City in our first ten. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, there's an appetite to be patient. I think people are kind of excited by the change. We've, you know, we've, as you, as you, as you said, Kev, we've kind of been so used to the same thing for quite a long time now. So 
it's just the, just the fact that there is a change is exciting and I think people are happy to kind of give Vieira that little bit of time and give him an opportunity to prove that he is he is kind of the man to take us forward. Yeah, that was going to be my question that you mentioned there was was about the patience. Obviously, the fan base, you have to give someone like Vieira time because the point is, is that he doesn't have a lot of experience at this level. So you have to kind of let him shape things, see how things shake out. But as you said, difficult start to the season, um, certainly. And in the mix with all of those matches against air quotes, big six clubs, you also have the Brighton match in there. Uh, obviously, always a stressful one for fans. If we get, say, through that that Brighton match, and, and against Jim's Lester, who obviously you're, you have re- revenge to get now, um, <laughs> that first week of October, like if you go through that stretch and you're hovering around the relegation zone, do you think that you'd still be giving Vieira that time institutionally or that it might be like De Burr only in the situation that they're starting to get antsy about a manager with a little bit less experience in the Premier League and might start looking elsewhere? I think that I think they still would give him, give him an opportunity this time. I think, as I've sort of said about the De Boer thing already, there were so many things that were wrong with it. Yeah. Um, you know, he was trying to change. Just, he was trying to make us play three at the back when he just didn't have the players to do so. Um, as I've said already, he was a really stubborn character. Apparently, quite difficult to get on with. Was sort of embarrassing the players on the training pitch. Um, and it just. I think it didn't feel like the right fit at all. And I think Steve Parrish realised that quite quickly. Um, it wasn't necessarily just about the fact that we were losing games, um, whatever it was, his four games, didn't he? Four losses and, and no goals. Um, I actually went to the last game of that of that stint. It, it was away at Burnley and we absolutely battered Burnley and still managed to lose one. No. So I think I, that wasn't all entirely down to the football. That was, as I say, that was kind of, variety of factors that mm. sort of led to Frank de Boer's demise whereas this time it does just feel a little bit different um Vieira feels like a little bit more of a personable character uh he it feel it, it looks like the players are on side with what he's trying to do um so yeah I thought it's, it's obviously difficult to say because <laughs> I'm seeing her saying it now and if we are you know through that stage of fixtures and we haven't won a game yet I, my opinion could be um, entirely different but I think if we at least see some of the changes that he's making and that we are sort of trying to play the right way and it looks like it's going in the right direction I think there still will be that patience um yeah I, I know sort of Premier League football is a results-based business but if he can navigate that sort of start of the season and even picking up you know one or two wins and we are hovering around that relegation zone I mean it's not as fairly frequent that we are hovering around that relegation zone at the start of the season anyway so it wouldn't be it wouldn't be too <laughs> drastic of a shift um but yeah I, I i think that that sort of patience will will stay there I, th- I think i think fans understand that i think they they appreciate that that's kind of something that has to happen this season because as i said they know they know how many players are left they know how many players have come in um so i think everyone kind of appreciates that it's going to take time yeah, and I think universally everyone has liked the signings that you made. So I, I think there's definitely cause for the optimism that you mentioned a little bit earlier. But yeah, I was just curious if, if uh, ownership might get a little too anxious if, if the heat starts getting turned up on them. But I, I think patience is probably the, the right call here. But man, that is just a murderer's row to start the year. But uh, as you said, you, you've been slow starters in the past. So maybe that won't, uh, that won't cause any drastic action. And we can yeah. see uh, Vieira in that manager's seat for quite some time. I was just going to say, it's almost a free hit in a way that starts the mm. season because no one's necessarily going to expect much. So if he does pull one or two results out of the bag, then you know that's something that will instill a lot of confidence in people. 
Yeah, and you'll obviously be learning the system in all of those weeks of training before those matches, which might not look pretty yeah. scoreline-wise. So by the time the schedule loosens up a little bit, maybe you'll be uh, far more comfortable with it and able to take advantage against some of the other sides in the Premier League. Um, next, we'll head into Player Watch, where I just wanted to get a quick take from you guys on who you think will be your club's leading scorer and maybe who's a young player that might break into the side this year. Yeah, usually there would only be one answer to this. Um, obviously, Zaha, who... Fingers crossed we'll still be a Palace play by the end of the transfer window. I don't think there's any reason to suggest that he won't be just now. Um, and he's looked really sharp in, in pre-season. Uh, I think he scored three goals in three games, got a couple against Watford yesterday. Um, but I've, I've kind of mentioned him already. Uh, there were real signs towards the end of last season that Benteke was <laughs> rediscovering some of the form that he, that he had when he first signed for Palace and was essentially sort of, you know, he was morphing back into the player that we all know he can be after after you know what's it's been well documented that he's had a really it's been well documented that he's had a really difficult few seasons with us um had some proper goal droughts but he managed to get to 10 last year which was which was really good and he did it um having played a lot less games than Zaha I think you know he was out for a chunk of the season with injury so I think if Benteke can stay fit for for the most part of this season then I actually I reckon he might he might he might outscore Zaha because um Zaha has been playing out wide a little bit more during during pre-season as well um so you know I'd like to think that we're sort of setting up to to place Benteke strengths which is something that Hodgson was kind of guilty of not doing on some occasions so uh yeah if he can sort of rediscover the form that that he was showing at the back end of last campaign then I think that you know Benteke could be the man to score the most goals for us this season um and in terms of a young player uh Jezrin Raksaki is is one to look out for he's been uh one of a number of youngsters actually have been involved during pre-season um but they've been really really high hopes for him he's sort of one of those that uh you know you sort of follow all the way through and you keep hearing his name mentioned um and Palace had a really good season at both under 18 and under 23 level last year and I think he played a part in in, in both of those squads um and again he's looked really really good in pre-season so I think there's a hope that he will break through and Vieira from his from his time at New York City and at Nice and also obviously working with City's academy is is someone who sounds like he, he he's not afraid to sort of throw the young players into the mix. So, yeah, that's an, another reason to be excited, hopefully. Cool. We'll definitely see uh, what happens there. And, yeah, the ben, Benteke season was a was probably a nice return to form after years of kind of being frustrated there. And then literally everyone will remember that Brighton goal forever. Um, Jim, uh, what do you think the situation there will be at Leicester this year in terms of top goal scorers and, and maybe a player to keep an eye on? It's a really interesting one at Leicester at the moment because, Kev, we've been talking on and off for two or three years about how to replace Vardy when mm. the time comes that he is in the uh, twilight of his career, which I think we probably all agree is is now. Um, and now we've got too many options um, for the formation that we play. So it, it's, a, it's a good problem to have, um, but I'm not quite sure how Rodgers is going to keep Vardy... Um, Ian Acho, or the, the reincarnation of Ian Acho, who looks every inch the striker that we paid all that money for three years ago and um, has failed to deliver for two and a half of those um, until he stepped in when Vardy was out injured and then kind of continued in a formation that was two up top. And now we've we've paid 
a significant um, sum for Patson Dacker, who Kev, I know you're a big fan of um, from his time at, at Salzburg. Um, so it, it's a really difficult one because Dacker looks like the ready-made Vardy replacement in terms of his speed. Um, he's obviously got a big reputation from scoring a lot of goals in Austria. Um, but I just don't know how we're going it, to... It's a genuine three-way battle, I think, for who's going to be first choice if we stick to a 4-2-3-1, which... I can't see us deviating from now that Madison's back fit because it means that Perez and Barnes can both be in the same team at the same time. We're not going to drop Madison. So he either plays as number 10 or he has to go wide to accommodate another striker, which I don't think we're necessarily going to do. And I don't see Rogers changing from the double pivot at the centre of midfield with Tielemans and, and Didi. So pending injuries, I don't really see how we fit two of them into the team at the same time. But Vardy's form for the last six months has been pretty poor. Um, he's only scored a couple of times um, and has really struggled since he came back from that injury. So there might come a time where he is displaced as the first choice striker. So I, I'm going to go um, with Dakar actually as like the outside ch- chance to to be the top goal scorer. But I think it might be a case of like two or three players getting 10 to 15 goals each rather than like a clear player who's pushing on into the 20s. Uh, which I think is, is great to have that many options. I just don't know how Rogers is going to fit them all in. Um, in terms of a player that people might not have heard or seen much of that is going to break through, I think it would pay dividends to keep an eye on um, Kieran Dewsbury Hall, um, who played a little bit in the Community Shield, so people might have seen him there. Um, he came on in the second half and by all accounts kind of equipped himself pretty well, did exactly what was expected of him, was battling in midfield. He's basically spent the last two years out on loan um, in the championship, so Blackpool and Luton. Um, I think he, he played a lot at Luton last year when he was there and he, he was there. I think he was their player of the season. Um, he played pretty much every game for them and in the cups and stuff. Um, so he's not a goal scoring midfielder at the moment. He's kind of more of that central defensive linchpin that can be the attacking outlet from an assist point of view. But he does have a goal in him. Um, and obviously, depending on what happens with Ndidi, um, if he has to play at centre back, there's a chance for the likes of Dewsbury Hall and Samare as well, who, who we've just signed. Um, Bubakari Samari to, to break into that central midfield. So, yeah, there's some exciting prospects at, at Leicester. And I suppose Dakar falls into that. Um, that category as well, being this is only 22. So, yeah, exciting times. But I think Dewsbury Hall is probably the one that's flying under most people's radars because of the fact that he's an academy product. Um, he's a Leicester boy as well. So it's always good to see that kind of come through the academy. Um, I think he's been with the club since he was like a ridiculously young age. Um, so one of those. And he's only 22. So there's plenty of room for him to develop. And hopefully, even if it's in just in the cups and stuff, then he's able to really cut his teeth at that higher level. Because I don't think the plan is to loan him out this year. I think he's he's definitely seen as a squad player that's going to get some time on the pitch. Cool. We'll definitely keep an eye out for him, Andy. Yeah, that, that striker battle should be quite a doozy it does make me wonder if that's why we're hearing madison rumors a little bit is you're just like we have too many players that need to be in our 11 maybe then we go back to the two striker thing that obviously you had to last year because of injury but yeah definitely interested to see how all they do and i i'm so so excited to get to see pass and in the premier league because we all saw what he was able to do um in the austrian league and if he's able to replicate even like 30 percent of that in the premier league he'll be a truly special player uh, all right, we will wrap up with match previews. We'll stick with you, Jim. Leicester hosting Wolves. Are, are you looking forward to this one, getting getting the season going and uh, against an opponent that's also had a lot of change this offseason? 
Yeah, we seem to play Wolves in the first or second week of every single season. I'm not convinced <laughs> this fixture computer is earning its money anymore. Like, I don't know what it's like for you guys, but I feel like we have the same start and the same finish every single year. Um, we always play Liverpool and we always play Manchester City around the turn of the year. Um, and we always start with Wolves and we seem to always finish with either Chelsea or Tottenham. So, um, I am really interested to see what Wolves look like post-Nuno, obviously. Um I know that they've obviously got Jimenez coming back from that horror injury um, in last last year. So I'm not quite sure how they're going to approach it. Um, I think it's a good litmus test for where we are because they're probably a, a mid-table team. So it's quite a good test of, of where we are as a club at the moment going forward. Um, I would like to see us go two up top um, and drop Perez, to be honest, because I don't think he offers as much. But then that does mean that, that Madison plays out of position. But... I would like to see that being an option against teams that are more likely to be defensive. So maybe home games against teams that are more likely to sit in and play that counter-attacking style. I do think that would offer us an outlet that means that we're likely to create more chances um, rather than just playing one up top. But I think Rodgers will stick to his guns and play the 4-2-3-1 and we'll just see if we can grind them out. I don't think it'll be super exciting. It's normally a low-scoring game, kind of settled 1-0 or a 0-0. Um, so I'd, I'm not surprised it wasn't selected for TV coverage, let's put it that way. It's a it's a standard 3 o'clock kickoff for the first weekend of the season, for sure. All right, and then coming to you now, Sam, to talk about Crystal Palace. Uh, you mentioned before we started that you're, you're facing Chelsea and that you might uh, be on your way there personally. Are you excited for the trip? Or as we mentioned, are you a little bit uh, doom and gloom about this start to the year? <laughs> yeah, not an ideal one to start with, especially after I've tipped Chelsea for the title during this podcast as or well. Or maybe that was um, a Mourinho thing. You're, you're complimenting them before you play them and then you can rip them afterwards. <laughs> yeah, you got me, Kev. You got me. Uh, but yeah, at the, at the same time, I, I just don't really know what to expect with the game. I don't really know who's going to play for us. There are a couple of injuries, as in Elise, unfortunately, being the most notable. Kiate went off injured in our last preseason game on Saturday. Um, we've had players like Anderson join the squad late, so you'd imagine Tom Kinsel paired with uh, Gay at the back. Um, Gallagher can't play because he's on loan from from Chelsea, um, but you'd imagine that you know he'll be. Um, He'll be sort of a regular feature in our midfield after that. Um, but to be honest, I think both Palace and Chelsea, there will be four or five players missing from what would ultimately be their strongest sides because of those factors. You know, we're not the only ones who have been affected by that. Chelsea have had players coming back from the Euros. Um, I'm sure not all of them will be up to match fitness. Uh, so I, I don't think this game is going to give too much away about about Palace under Vieira. Um, I'll maybe change that if we end up going there and like winning 2-0 and uh, <laughs> playing some pure flair football. But <laughs> yeah, I can't really see that happening. I sort of expect us to maybe uh, pay homage to the to the days of Hodgson by, by sitting in and trying to grind out what we can from the game. Um, but yeah, as, as, you, as you said, I am going. And to be honest, I'm just, it's the, it's the first time I've been to a, been to a Palace game since uh, since the pandemic started so um so yeah just just really really excited to to have an away day again uh, i know it's not the biggest trip um across london but yeah it, it would be great to be back a little bit surreal as well i'm sure but um yeah really excited about making the trip uh, irrespective of, of what the result's going to be <laughs> and sometimes it's more fun when you get to go and there aren't expectations <laughs> for a win um, and then if something special happens you know then it makes it all all the sweeter and best of luck doing that I certainly don't have any hidden love uh, or Chelsea by any stretch. 
Um, awesome. Well, seriously, thanks to you two so much for coming on today. We've run a little long, but people at home, hopefully you don't mind that we've gone long and hopefully you two don't mind either uh, as we uh, approach the hour and a half mark. But seriously, it's been a pleasure chatting to both of you. If you'd like to tell folks where they can find you or anything you're working on, now would be a good time. Yeah, cheers, Kev. Great to be on with uh, you and Jim again. Um, I'm Sam Karp. Uh, as I said at the start, I'm a Crystal Palace fan. You can sometimes find my work on the Eagles Beak. Uh, I'm also the depth editor at a company called Sports Pro, so there's other stuff on on there. Um, and yeah, good luck to good luck to Leicester and Spurs this season. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Kev. Uh, always enjoyable to, to speak to you and Sam, especially with the new season ahead of us. Very exciting for everyone, I'm sure. Um, I'm Jim. You can find me on Twitter at Jim Knight Tweets. And yeah, hopefully be on a couple more times this season and recapping our progress. Interesting. Sam wishes Lester good luck and you just you just put him in the dirt again, but that's I fine. I feel like it would be disingenuous after <laughs> uh, predicting them going down. So obviously good luck to, to Palace and to, to Harry Kane or Harry Kane-less Tottenham uh, for the rest of the season. <laughs> well, thank you for saying that. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at KevRoff. You can find the show at EPL Roundtable, both on Twitter and on all of your podcasting apps. Uh, so thanks to, again, these guys for coming on. Sorry, Jim, for <laughs> being a little rude there. And folks at home, we hope you keep listening and that you enjoy the start of the 2021-2022 season. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.